We all have stories. We all have situations that we've been in. We all have things that drive us to want to share Jesus. Let me start out a little bit here by talking about some reasons why I hope you're not here. I mean, that doesn't come out right. You're obviously here. <laughs> hope some reasons that didn't motivate you to come to this place. One of these is we're not here to manipulate. Like, our goal in, in sharing our faith is not to kind of trick people or, or come up with, you know, backdoor solutions or, you know, the kind of things where people don't know what they're doing and we just, we just you know, manipulate them into following Jesus. That that's, that's not what we're going to talk about. That's not what this is. That's not what it's about. We're also not here to, to argue, is it? To, to win arguments. Like, I'm not going to give you, like, three things you can say to anybody that'll shut down any argument against Jesus. Like, that's not, that's not what this is. We're not here to, to show off, to win arguments, to be smarter than others. Like, that's, I'm not going to give you that. I'm just going to tell you up front, that's not what this is. I'm also not here to give you some silver bullet. Some magic thing that's going to open every door and open every heart. And no matter what situation you're in, you just do this one thing and, and you know, all of a sudden we're going to sing just as I am and it's all over. And, you know, that's not what this is. There's no silver bullets to this. One of the things I'm going to say multiple times over the six weeks is evangelism is simple, but people are complex. And so every story and every reality and every situation we run into is going to have its own, its own needs and its own unique dynamics. And we're not going to be prepared for everyone. But hopefully we'll get enough to know how to make some of those first steps and how to have those conversations and how to know what's next in this person's life. Ultimately, why I hope we're all here is because we believe this. We believe Jesus is the best thing. He's the best hope. He's the best solution. He's the best answer to no matter what we face in life, to no matter what difficulty we have, to no matter what we would encounter in life that Jesus is the absolute best thing we have in our lives. And out of the knowledge of that truth, we want to, as all good people do, share what is best with us with others. I mean, I don't know if you realize that, but humans are natural evangelists. If you go out and see the most amazing movie this weekend, what are you immediately going to do? Yeah, you're going to tell me, hey, did you see this? All that kind of stuff. You know, if you go out and have the best meal of your life tomorrow evening, what are you immediately going to do? You're going to tell your neighbors and friends and all this kind of stuff. We as human beings instinctually share what is best with others. And so let that be true about Jesus. That we know he is the absolute best thing in our lives. And we want to share those with the people that matter to us most. To get into that, let me give you a little bit of context for this course. Kind of walk you through what this is and where it came from and share a little bit of my own story in that too. We're going to have to go back to 2006, which is way longer ago than I'm comfortable with. Uh, but in 2006, my wife and I, we moved to China. We uh, had that calling in our life. We found an organization we were with. We had a lot of experiences I don't have time to walk into. But we knew that God was calling us as, as a young married couple to, to move to China. And we got there. And, and I don't know if you knew this, but China is a different country. <laughs> and uh, with that, they have a very different culture and a very different way of life. And we quickly realized after we got there, we have no idea what we're doing in this place. And we went there to share our faith. We went there to be college professors and be with college students and, and tell them about Jesus, do all the things we're not supposed to do there. And we were quickly out of our depth. We're like, I don't, I don't have a clue how to start a conversation, let alone lead it to you know, bringing someone to faith in Jesus. And so my personality type is the type that when I don't know what to do, I study it. 
Like, if I don't have a solution on this stuff, give me some books or give me some things, and I'm just going to intellectually drive at it. That's how I fix problems in my life. Some guys have duct tapes, I have books. <laughs> and so I started looking into it, and I find out there's some good resources out there. And I find out there's some people who know some stuff about this, and that's super interesting. Then uh, I started grad school, which, uh, if you don't have to do that, don't do that, by the way. <laughs> but no one told me that beforehand. So, uh, I enrolled at Wheaton College, where our, our organization we were with had a program where you could go and get a free master's degree, and free sounds good, so uh, I signed up for it and, and took classes there, majored in intercultural studies. It was about my second year, I had a class with this famous professor, Scott Moreau, and it was on evangelism. That's what the class was, it was like, how do you evangelize well? And he started you know, giving us the best books and talking about these strategies, and it just made my mind expand. And, it was wonderful, and at the very end of the course, he made us all do this like evangelism project. We got in a group of four people, and we kind of had to produce this evangelism curriculum at the end that we could share with our students, and it was this really cool product. And so we took that, and we did that over a summer, and we came back to our schools in the fall, and we just started doing it, and we started sharing it with our teammates, and everybody started realizing this is a really cool thing, and then my organization got involved, ELIC, this Massive organization of over a thousand people across China and the Middle East that, that are using English as a way to, to be in people's lives and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, hey, can we use this like in other places and on a bigger scale? And I'm like, sure. That's not what I planned, but great. And they're like, would you be the guy who teaches that to everybody? And I'm like, oh no. What have I gotten into? And, but that became my job, was to train our people in how to share their faith using this kind of stuff. And it kind of developed and evolved and became something there. Then I had a mentor in my life, and he said, hey, you need to keep going back to school. And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, no, this is what God's telling you. And spoiler alert, God wins. And so I went back to school again, started doing this crazy thing called a PhD at Biola University. And my professors there said, hey, you got to do this dissertation thing. That's part of the requirement. And they said, what's something you're passionate about that you want to know more about? And I was like, uh, evangelism. And they're like, okay, and we worked and we created this evangelism project, and it became this massive thing that took up years and years of my life, and I got, at the end I got a diploma, and that was good, but uh, I went through that stage of just deep academic rigors of how this stuff happens, and then we came to Joplin. We were only planning to be here for six months or a year, and we were going to go back to Asia, <laughs> the door back closed, to make a very long story short. And so uh, Ozark Christian College, my alumni, my, my school that I graduated from, they said, uh, hey, we, uh, we're kind of revamping our courses on evangelism and discipleship. We kind of want to do them a different way. You have some experience. You've done some stuff. Well, you, you teach it. And so I had to take this idea that was, you know, at this high academic doctoral level and bring it to 18-year-olds. And that made it a different thing in a different place. And it became a 16-week course. And it really, really exciting. And I got to do that, you know, three days a week. And then now we have here. We talked with some people and we started asking who are we as a church? What do we want to be about? What, what does College Heights' future need to be? And we kind of, as a leadership team and as ministers of this church, really came a conviction that the next step of College Heights has to be a church that cares about the lost. And so as we strategized and looked at sermon series and all this kind of stuff, they said, what if we just took a course on evangelism? And they knew that I did that at Ozark. And they said, can you do it for us? And so to me, this is, this is super exciting because I think that that's what this journey has always been leading to. Because any great thing we do for Jesus always has to sit in the church. And so this is the very first time in this long journey that I've ever taught it to just 
a church environment. And that's exciting for me, and I think it's where it's always meant to go, and I'm super excited that you get to be the first round of it. You're the guinea pigs, I apologize. So we're going to see how it works and how it goes, but that's kind of where this has been and what this is about. Let me walk you through the six weeks of how this happens. Is uh, I don't know if you're a person who cares more about the why or the how, um, but today, let me tell you, it's all going to be about the why. If you came here because you want to just extremely practical advice on how to kind of do, stuff, do that stuff, you're going to need to be patient because we're not going to do that till next week. Today is building like a conceptual foundation. We're going to talk about just core concepts as we approach evangelism. And then for the following five weeks, we're only going to talk about how to do that. So I just want your expectations to be set. I don't want you to be disappointed if today you walk away and you're like, I didn't learn anything. Well, that's okay. We weren't supposed to learn anything today. <laughs> we're going to talk about what you need to know to be able to learn. And then we're going to do that over the next five weeks, and that's how this is going to work. So... First question we asked to start out today is the question, why are you here? I want to take that question and kind of move it up to a higher place. Beyond just like why you're here this evening and why you came to College Heights at 6.30 on Wednesday, I want to go bigger to ask questions like, why do you exist? Like, what is your purpose? What is your reason? Let's, let's get real philosophical to start this out. Um, I think the answer to that, and, and you don't have to agree with me, but I'm in charge. So, uh, I think the answer to that question of like our purpose in existence and why God does anything with us is actually quite simple. It's four letters, two words. On the one side, it's be, B-E, who you are to be. And then on the other side, it's do, D-O. I think if we can... Summarize our entire existence. There's who you're to be, and there's what you're to do. Another way to say that is it's your identity and your actions. It's who you are and what you do. That is our existence, in a nutshell. The funny thing about the be and the do, about the identity and the actions, is they, they, they work in a relationship with one another. They create a cycle. Because what you do in life comes out of who you believe you are. If you think you're a smart person, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to study and you're going to tell people what you think and, you know, all this kind of stuff because your identity is going to match your actions on some level. If you think you're a kind person, what are you going to do? Yeah, you're going to be loving and compassionate and serve others and all that kind of stuff. Who we see ourselves becomes who we are. But the funny thing is it works the other way too. What we do reinforces who we think we are. Because if you do, if we talked about before, if you make bad choices in your life, if you're doing things that you shouldn't do, and you get stuck in, in bad cycles of stuff, you begin to change your image of self. And you begin to think that you're worthless, and that you're lost, and that you're broken, and all that kind of stuff. Your existence is who you are and what you do. We know that the only way we know the truth about those things, about who we are and what we do, comes from Scripture. We know that it's the Creator who defines the creation. We know that when we want to know our identity, we don't look within ourselves because we're unreliable, because we're emotional, because we're waffling all over the place, and we can't know our identity from within ourselves. 
We also know we can't know our identity from without ourselves. We can't look at other people and say, tell me who you are, because we're going to get a lot of different answers and a lot of different things. We know that the only source of identity is God himself. And what God has said to us is that we are his children. What God has said to us is that we are made in his image. And so there's a lot of scripture and a lot of commands and a lot of kind of stuff that is about your identity and who you are. And that's all great stuff. And I'm not going to teach you any of that in this class. We're instead going to talk about the other side, which is what do we do? What are the actions? What are the responsibilities that we have as people of faith? So why are we here? Another way of asking this question is, what are we supposed to do? If we know that we're children of God, if we know that we're made in His image, if we know that all the things the gospel tells us, that we're loved, and we're forgiven, and we're empowered, and we're purified, and all that kind of stuff, what do we do? I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answer, because we don't have time to walk through it. The answer is, you are here to multiply. That the number one command that I believe God has given us from literally day, I can't say day one, day six, because that's Genesis, is to multiply. Let me just walk you through it, if you don't believe me. Let's start in Genesis 1, chapter 27 and 28. This is, of course, day six. God is wrapping up his creation. He's gone through all the stuff of light and, and void and animals and all that kind of stuff. And in day six, he creates Adam and Eve. And then he wraps up his creation, his culmination of humanity with this statement. He says, for God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In other words, he gives them a statement of identity. He tells them who they are, the do. He says, you're image bearers. I don't know exactly what that means, let me tell you to be honest. I just know it's, we're somehow like God in some way, maybe? Kind of? I don't know. Ask other people who know more. But he makes an identity statement. And then the very next thing out of that identity statement comes a command of action. He says, this is who you are, and so this is what you do. And he said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. The very, very first command he ever gives humanity is to multiply. Fast forward throughout the Bible. We know what happens next. How do Adam and Eve do? Not so great, because Genesis 3 happens, and they fall, and, and they have sons, and humanity goes forward, and it really, really gets off to a bad start. So much so that in Genesis chapter 9, things get really dark. God is so grieved at his creation that he says, let's just start over. Like, I'm so just disgusted with how my creation is acting that we're going to get this guy, Noah, and we're going to get his sons and their families, and we're just going to start over from scratch again. I mean, it's, it's just super dark. I'm always weirded out when we, like, put Noah's Ark on the walls of our children's ministries. So I'm like, if you're going to put the animals, you've got to put the drowning people, too. It's just, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not a kid's story, is my point. Like, it's super dark. And uh, it happens, because he's going to start over. And so in some ways, you can think of Noah as kind of the next Adam. He's the new beginning of creation. He's the new culmination of God's desires for his creation to be what it's going to be. And so the flood happens, and everybody dies, and eventually it recedes, and there's the dove and the rainbow, and... God takes Noah and his sons and he gives them a command. He tells them what to do. He says, God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
Fast forward again. God's working with his people. There's this guy, Abram, who becomes Abraham. And after Abraham comes? Isaac. And after Isaac comes? Jacob. And what do we know about Jacob? Yeah, he's a rascal. He's just an ornery kid. And Jacob we run into in Genesis chapter 28. And we got that famous story with him and Esau. I don't know how hairy Esau was. But he's hairy to the point that, like, his dad thinks animal fur is his son. I don't know <laughs> what kind of hairiness that requires. But that's just a one manly dude. So, uh, of course, being such a rascal, he, of course, steals his father's blessing and, and all that kind of stuff. And he gets the rights of the firstborn. And there's all these dynamics going on around that. But in that blessing and in that firstbornness and in what is to become the line that leads to Jesus... As Isaac gives his blessing to Jacob, he says this, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. <laughs> Fast forward a little bit more, not too much, to Genesis chapter 35. And Jacob wasn't supposed to be the guy. This wasn't how it was supposed to work. There's some like illegitimacy to the line now. And so God intercedes himself because he's got to fix this. I mean, this line is important. This is the history of God's people. This will eventually lead to the Messiah. And so God has to kind of intervene in Genesis chapter 35 and say, let me legitimize this whole thing. So the first thing he does is he deals with Jacob. And he says, your name is Jacob, but you'll no longer be Jacob. Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. In other words, he gave him first an identity. He said, your old identity was broken and messed up and created problems. So you're going to be a new person now called Israel. I'm going to give you an identity. And then immediately after that identity, he gives him an action. He gives him a command. And he said, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. So out of Jacob slash Israel comes the nation. And the nation moves forward. And they find the promised land. And, and all this kind of stuff occurs. But we know, how does it go for the nation of Israel? Not real good. They start out by wanting a king, and that creates its own issues, and they have their own civil war, and they split, and Israel gets sent off to Assyria, and Judah gets sent off to Babylon, and that's just traumatic because they were a people that are, their identity was in their land. And in the midst of that, we have prophets, and prophets had a terrible, terrible job because they basically had to fail. Prophets had to come in and say, don't do this thing, knowing that the people would do this thing. And then they would tell them all the punishments that would come, and then the punishments would come. And Prophets weren't great at parties, is all I'm saying. One of the best was, oh, we skipped Leviticus, so how embarrassing. Okay, we get to Leviticus, and the nation starts, and they create rules, really exciting books. And at the end of Leviticus, in summarizing all that the rules mean, he says, if you keep my covenant, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. Sorry, we skipped that one. We're at Jeremiah. Things have not gone well. The nation has been destroyed. They are a people who has rebelled against God and received the punishment accordingly. All of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet up to this point, has been warnings that became reality. And then finally in chapter 23, he turns from prophet into pastor and wants to give a message of hope. And what he says in Jeremiah 23, he says, talking on behalf of God, that I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture. He says, I'm going to restore you to who you used to be. 
And in that new place and in that new identity, the same command happens again. And I will be fruitful and multiply. So here we have it, kind of tracing all of the Old Testament, the repetition of the same command over and over again to multiply. So hopefully I've convinced you, kind of like, that's what God expects of us. Like from the beginning, Adam and Eve, all the way through the nation of Israel and all their history, the command again and again is that we are a people who multiply. So hopefully you agree with me at this point. But... What does multiplication look like today? <coughs> because we know in the Old Testament, multiplication was a, was a biological reality. Like when he told the nation to multiply, that meant have babies and bring them to faith. But what's happened since the Old Testament? <coughs> Jesus, and if there's anything Jesus does, it's change things. And so that call to multiply that has been God's command from the beginning, it changes. It, it, it evolves. It becomes something that it wasn't before. And so what I'm asking is, do we have a next step to this continual call to multiply? And I believe that we do. It's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I know we all know it, but let's just read it together. Can we all read it together? Everybody see it? Ready? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. I believe that this is the spiritual successor to that continual call to be fruitful and multiply. I believe in the church era, in the New Testament era, that this is the continuation of God's command that has always existed. So let's look at it a little bit. In our NIV English translation here, we have four verbs, four action statements, four kind of commands, if you will. What are they? Go ahead and tell me what they are. What are the four verbs we see here? Go. Go, that's the first one. Make. 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 Baptizing. Baptizing and teaching. teaching. Now, one of the problems with translations, one of the problems with not reading this in the first language, is that in the English it kind of looks like we have four equal verbs, four commands of what we're going to do. But in the Greek it doesn't look that way. In the Greek it's the verbs are different types and different forms. There's actually only one of those four that's, that's called imperative. If you can think all the way back to 8th grade English grammar, what does imperative mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a forceful command. It's, it's, it's something that you have to do. It carries the weight of the sentence. And can you guess of those four verbs, which one is imperative? Go. Not go. That's what we usually think. It's the first one. It sounds forceful. It's not teaching. It's not baptizing. It's make. Of the one that he says, you've got to do more than anything else. Of the command, the imperative of the sentence is make. How I would translate or conceptualize this verse is kind of my nightly ritual with my children. I have four children, ages 3 to 12. It's a lot of work at my house. One of the things, you guys probably know this better than me, is when you've got to get kids to do things, you can't just give them vague statements of command. Kids need very clear direction and instruction if you have any hope of them actually doing anything you want them to do. So, for example, each night, I have to, get my kid, I have to help get my kids to bed. And I know I can't just tell my kids, children, please go to bed. And then they all angelically go off into their rooms and everything. And my wife and I sit and eat bonbons and drink champagne, and it's a wonderful moment. That's not, that's not what happens. You've got to give clear, direct commands. 
And so I can't just say, go to bed. I can give the general command, but I have to give specific statements of direction under that. So for my kids, it's use the bathroom, brush your teeth, put on your pajamas. I have a general command and then three explanations of what that means. I think Jesus did the same thing here, where the general command is make disciples. But how does that work? How do we do it? I think the other three verbs tell us how. First, go. Go, honestly, is a weird word. It has a spectrum of meanings. Go can mean everything from like, you know, the call to Abraham to leave your nation and to wreck your life and to go to some crazy place and do some crazy things. The word means that in some circumstances. Other times the word go is very casual and passive and it means like, as you're living life, as you're doing what you're doing, do this thing. And so honestly, I think in the Holy Spirit's inspiration, the reason that word was used is because going includes all of that. It includes for some people wrecking their life and going to other countries and completely doing crazy stuff. For a lot of people, it means just as you're living the life that God's given you, go. And then we have two things. We have baptized. We know that baptized comes at the point of conversion. We know that you have to help people in their journey to faith to understand who Jesus is, to make a commitment to him. And baptism is the ultimate realization of that. But it continues. We go to people. We help them understand who Jesus is. And then we teach them to what? What does it say? Teach them to? Obey. Obey. And obey what? Everything. Everything that he commanded. To live a full and complete life obedient to Jesus in every way, that that's what it means to make disciples. We're going to cover in this class some of that. This is not a course where we talk about everything that it means to make a follower of Jesus. We're just going to do kind of up to this one. But I want us to be clear, because this is our conceptual day of the foundations of what we're doing here, that getting people to a place of faith is great and important and wonderful, but it's not the whole job. That our call is not to baptize. Our call is to make disciples. Getting them to a point of faith is absolutely critical and important and a major part of that, but it's not the end and it's not everything that we're about. So, why are we here? We're here to multiply us for that. How do we do that? To make disciples. Hopefully you're with me there. Let me tell you what we're going to do today for the rest of our time. Is we're going to talk about foundations for evangelism. We're going to get into four key concepts that are important for us to be able to evangelize and to evangelize well. So again, not super practical, but if you're a why person who wants to know how things work and how important, these will be there for you. Again, we've got four. You ready for number one? Sure. Alright, let's do number one, which says... <coughs> Evangelism is most effective when done relationally. There's a very important reason why we titled this course Relational Evangelism, because we want evangelism to be, can you guess? Relational. relational. <coughs> yes. What does relational require? Relationship. Yes, yeah, see, so now it all works together. This is in contrast to what I would call impersonal evangelism. Impersonal evangelism is kind of when we want to share the gospel with no relationship involved. So it could be things like, do you know what tracks are? Are you familiar with those? Not tracks, it's in train tracks. I'm speaking probably to my younger audience here. It's called T-R-A-C-T-S. It was big in the 80s. And these little tiny booklets, most of them were about people burning in hell. And we, there was a strategy of evangelism called track bombing, where we'd go and 
put these little booklets in strategic places and hopefully maybe somebody came along and picked one up and found Jesus. Now, we have stories of how that works sometimes. I'm not, I'm not you know, condemning the whole thing. But it's impersonal evangelism. Another common form of impersonal evangelism is kind of in big, you can think, Billy Graham crusades. Where people just show up, they hear a speaker, they get convicted by the message, they make a decision. But there's really nobody who kind of went with them. And there's nobody that would follow up on that decision. And we just kind of hope whatever happened in the individual response of that moment goes on, but there's nobody taking care of it, and there's nobody watching over it, and all this kind of stuff. Here's the thing. Some of, this, some of these weird academic types. Uh, one of those guys, he did a study on that. He actually went on a, like a multi-decade thing and tracked all the people who went to Billy Graham Crusades and made a decision to follow Jesus. And he tracked, like, did they go with people? Did they have a church that they were involved with beforehand? Like, was this personal or impersonal? Was this relational or not? And he took the, all the people who it wasn't. They just went and showed up and made a decision and had nothing to connect it to and nowhere to go and all that kind of stuff. And he tracked five years later, how many of those people were still following Jesus in any way, in any form? Like, if you asked them, are you a Christian? They would say yes or no. Multi-year study over all those people who had no personal relational connection to anybody when they made a decision to follow Jesus. I'll just give you the answer. Five years later, only 6% of those people were still following Jesus. So 94% of the people who made a decision and confession of faith, who had no person to connect it to, no community to walk through that with, no one to teach them to obey everything. Only 6% of them five years later were still following Jesus in any way, shape, or God created us to be relational. He created us for community. And evangelism becomes disciple-making, which is what this is all about, when it's done with people who watch and care and help us understand what it means. I want you to think of evangelism and, and baptism and all that kind of stuff, and that's the biblical language. It's, it's new life. It's birth. It's John 3, born again. And many of us in this room have born children. Maybe not us, but our spouses. And it's like, does the work of parenthood end when the child's born? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's when everything in your life changes. And it's when your responsibilities ramp up to an extreme. And it's all this kind of stuff. Because what would happen to the babies if we just said, you know, hey, we're glad you're born. High five. We're going to put you in a baby small group. And good luck. See you next Sunday. <laughs> It's not going to work. And so any desire and effort that we... <laughs> any desire and effort that we have to share Jesus with others has to be done in a relationship because it's in that relationship that they're going to grow and understand the ultimate relationship to be with Jesus. Let me figure out what happened here. Are we back on, sort of? No, let me try this. Yeah, some of you feel me right now. You've been in this. Hey, that's my family. They're cute, aren't they? <laughs> All right, that's number 
one, evangelism is most effective if done relationally. That's a quick one. Let's go to number two. Evangelism must be done with discipleship in mind. What I mean by that is that when we make efforts to share our faith, when we want to help guide a person to a decision to follow him, we have to be very careful that it doesn't become salesmanship. Salesmanship, what's, what's the goal of a salesman? Yeah, to make a sale, to buy a product. What is a salesman's job after you've bought the product? Nothing, you're gone, because what do you need to do next? Yeah, make more sales and find more sales and all that kind of stuff. And so the salesmen, especially the worst ones, don't care what happens to you in the product afterward. Like, they don't care if you're satisfied a year later. They don't care what your long-term relationship with the product's going to be. Like, none of that stuff matters. All they want is a sale. And some of the evangelism that freaks me out is just heaven salesmanship. I just want you to make a decision as quickly as possible, and I'm going to create a manipulative environment where I'm going to play on your emotions so that you, without thinking about anything, just make a decision that you don't really understand because I need to get the sale. But when we understand that we're making disciples, we can't go about it. When we're making disciples, we care about who you're going to be five years from now, 15 years from now, 50 years from now. And so what that means is in our beginning conversations and when we start to share our faith and when questions come, that we give the hard answers. Because we're not trying to make a quick sale. We're trying to begin a lifelong relationship. And so I could tell you stories all night about what that's been like for me. One quick one was there was a, there was a guy I was working with. He, uh, I met him because someone introduced him to me. He'd been searching for Jesus for quite a long time in his life before he met me. He was this businessman, quite a bit older than me, but somebody I knew connected me with a guy, and we started talking, and he had all these questions about Jesus, and I answered him as best I could, and then we started doing just a, a walk through the Gospel of John together. And, and he was getting it, and seemed to be tracking it, and I'm excited because I'm thinking, this, this guy is just, you know, he's going to come to faith. I just know it. I see the desire. I see his heart and all that kind of stuff. And then we got to a parable about forgiveness. And I guess he'd never thought about it before, but his question for me that night was at the end of a story where he told me about a person in his life that had severely abused him and his siblings. And he said, if I want to follow Jesus, do I have to forgive him? Like, is that part of the deal? Is that part of this thing? Is that part of what happens? And I, because I was concerned not about a sale, but about who he was going to be, I said, yeah. If we expect Jesus to forgive us, we have to forgive others. That's, what it, that's just what it says. And I never saw him again. There's another time that I was in a meeting, it was, it was a kind of a group evangelism thing, and we've got multiple people there. The topic of hell comes up. And that's <coughs> always a difficult conversation. This girl, her, uh, her parents weren't believers, and in her mind she was convinced they never would be. And so she said, Do you, are you telling me that my parents are going to go to hell? And I said, you know, as I, unless they change, unless they come to faith unless they repent, then, then yeah, that's, that's what it is, not how it works. And she said, well, I'd rather go to hell with them than heaven without them. And those are the kind of hard things that we deal with 
when we evangelize with discipleship in mind is we're not trying to manipulate that situation and get the hard things out and you know give them the fastest track and just do all this kind of stuff because our goal is to make disciples and that's different. We are in many ways talking about the difference between a convert and a disciple. Jesus does not call us to make converts. That's not the Great Commission. It's not get as many people to make a quick emotionally manipulated decision. Disciples and converts are different things. Let me. Some of this stuff I made up, some of this I found other places, but I thought it was instructive. I'll just go through these real quick. What's the difference between a convert and a disciple? Converts follow the rules. Disciples follow Jesus. Converts go to church. Disciples are the church. Converts read the Bible to know what it says. Disciples read the Bible to know how to obey. Converts build Christendom. Disciples build the kingdom. Converts see baptism as the end. Disciples see baptism as the beginning. Converts make converts. Disciples make disciples. Our goal, and I want to be very clear on this from day one, is to make disciples. That's what we're here. That's what we're about. That's number two. I've been talking a lot. Let's change that. Here's some discussion questions that are way too small for you to probably read from where you're sitting. But let's try anyway. Let's get some discussion. Let's get you guys to talk to you. After that discussion's over, we're going to take a little bit of a break because 90 minutes is way too long to sit and listen to anybody. So talk to each other for a little bit. Go over these questions. Afterwards, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back together. So go ahead and talk about these with some people around. All right, let's, let's skip to... Uh, we're a little shorter on time than I expected. Let's skip to number three. Uh, let's do like two minutes of questions. That's all we have time for before I want you to take a break. Two minutes of questions on anything we talked about. Anything you want me to explain, refine. Why don't we stop the conclusion? Because it's easier. At the end of the day is what it is. Like, um, it's, it's like, it's like babies being born. It's not easy. I don't want to, don't want to make that statement. Um, but uh, there's just there's a finality to it, and we can move on, and it's done, and we don't have to deal with the late nights and the spit-up and the changing diapers and all that kind of stuff. And, and a lot of times, especially for men, the hard work of parenting begins at that point. And so uh, it's just easier to say, we did something great. They're going to heaven. Let's move on. Um, that's a lot of what it is. I think also it's, uh, just to be real honest, there's a, there's a certain Americanness to this because we have put, um, I don't know how to say this, we've put like business practices upon church strategies. And so we've looked at evangelism like a business strategy, like salesmanship. And so good salesmanship is done after the person buys the product. Like, we're done. So we, a lot of times, the, 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 in my mind, the worst styles of evangelism are like salesmanship where we say as a church, like, okay, what's our, what's our shiniest product? What's our most attractive thing that we as a church have? The answer, of course, is heaven. That's our most attractive product. Notice I didn't say Jesus. I said heaven. And so we say, oh, okay, well, let's, let's get people to buy into heaven. And the way we get them to buy into heaven is to be afraid of hell. And so as long as we can just sell them heaven, then we've done our job and... We can mark it on an Excel spreadsheet and we can talk about what we've done and it just fits like business models. And I think that's a part of it too. Um, it's amazing how much I haven't seen that mentality in other countries and in other places. It seems to be a uniquely American approach. 
Let's start again at 7.30. Can we do that? We need to get up, stretch, do whatever you need to do. Let's start again at 7.30 for a last 30 minutes. Yeah, it's That's the first one. What's the second one? Yeah, we must evangelize with discipleship in mind. We gotta care about who the person's gonna be 30 years from now just as we care about where they're going eternally. Like that stuff's gotta matter. That's number two. Let me give you number three. Number three is evangelistic content must match evangelistic context. Let me unpack that one for you. Content means like the stuff that's happening. So content like for this class today has been four concepts of the foundation of evangelism. That's our content. That's the information that's happening. The context is all the things that are happening around us. So the fact that we changed rooms last minute and maybe you were confused. Or the fact that we're meeting on a Wednesday night when we have children's programming and that we're in this room that has a really tall ceiling and bad audio and all that kind of stuff. It's the context. It's the situation in which it occurs. What we have to understand is that our evangelistic content, the message that we give, has to match the context, which is the person in the situation. They need to go together to be able to work well. Let me give you an example. I don't know if you guys know this, but today is a very important Hindu holiday. That Hindu holiday is called Maha Shivaratri. Do you want to try to say that with me? Say it with me. Maha Shivaratri. Now, what this is about is it's about this guy up here. His name is Lord Shiva. I don't know if you're familiar with him or anything that's gone about. Let me give you some information, some facts about this holiday that's coming up. Is it a celebration of the day that Shiva was married to Parvati according to the Hindu scriptures? So Shiva and Parvati are kind of like the, the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie of Hinduism. They're like the, you know, the key couple and all that kind of stuff. And so this is the day <coughs> celebrating the marriage of these two people. It takes place on the 13th night of Krishna Paksha and the month of Falgun in the Hindu calendar. It's a major festival in reverence to Lord Shiva and to Shaivism, which is a denomination of Hinduism. Now you may be wondering, who is Lord Shiva that we just mentioned? I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some answers. He, uh, here's a picture of him. He's one of the primary forms of God, according to Hinduism. He's called the Destroyer, which is a little dark, or the Transformer, which is a little more positive. Uh, he is regarded as limitless, transcendent, unchanging, and formless. He's the patron god of yoga and the arts. Some physical features of this dude. He carries a trident. He's a little bit like Aquaman in that sense. You can see it up there. Uh, he has a third eye in the middle of his forehead, which gives him insight and enlightenment into the world. He's always can, uh, with a crescent moon, which you can kind of see in the background there. He's covered in ashes, which gives him that kind of grayish, purple, blue coating that he has all around him and all that kind of stuff. Now, again, this is about the celebration of him and his wife. Here's some pictures of kind of that evening, it's romantic scene and all that kind of stuff of them getting married and falling in love and all that wonderful thing. Some of the celebrations and customs of this holiday. Here's some pictures of some things that go up. Basically, people go to Hindu temples. That's just where this stuff happens. They go and they congregate and they celebrate these Hindu temples. So people bring food and all that kind of stuff. They put these big like altars or statues of a middle and they all walk around and, and celebrate that way. Uh, again, a lot of physical representations of the couple. They make these statues and idols and all those kind of things. Uh, children will often dress up as one of the two characters. As kind of a way to get into it and all that kind of stuff. There's just, there's a lot that goes on in this holiday. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, that's, that's the celebration. Now, let me ask you a question. 
Who's ready to convert to Hinduism? Anybody? Anybody more likely to convert to Hinduism than you were five minutes ago? No, because that's not what you came here for. Like, you didn't show up this evening because you wanted to hear a presentation about a Hindu holiday because you were interested in the Hindu religion. I just kind of threw that at you unexpectedly, of which you had no previous desire. And as you notice, it had absolutely no effect. Sometimes that's the problem, the, the mistake that we make in evangelism as well, is we want to kind of just throw some stuff on people that aren't asking for it, that have demonstrated no desire for it, <coughs> hear it, and then we wonder why it doesn't work. The content has to match the context. The gospel that we share, and the amount of the gospel, and the level of the gospel, and the depth of the gospel, has to match the person at the place that they want to receive each of those things. So, the reason good evangelism is relational is because in your relationship with that person, you're going to know where they're at. You'll have sat down with this person and had meals with this person and shared your story with this person and listened to their stories, and you're going to know where their spiritual desire is. You're going to know how much gospel they're prepared for. You're going to know what's going on in their story, and you're going to have content, gospel content, that matches the context of their life. And when we get those two things coming together at the same time, we see a lot more effectiveness. What this is, is the principle of context. And the principle of context is not only helpful for good evangelism, but it helps stop the opposite of evangelism, which is people who don't like Jesus even more. The principle of context is the content given within the wrong context produces results in opposition to our goals. So in other words, after seeing those images and looking at those things, you probably think Hinduism is even more weird than you did five minutes ago. Because the content didn't match the context, and so it didn't make you like it more, it made you like it less. We can do this sometimes in, like, the dating world. I don't know how many of you need this advice, but... Um, <laughs> don't propose on the first date is good dating advice. Because the content doesn't match the context. There is a time and a place for a proposal. But it's probably not on the first date, because people aren't ready for that. It's not the time and the place and the situation where that occurs, and so the content and the concept doesn't match. So what happens if you propose on the first date? Are you going to get a second one? Probably not. It's going to produce results the opposite of what you want, because the situation doesn't match the information. The same is true for evangelism. Finally, let's get to number four. Evangelistic strategy must match an individual journey. In other words, the strategy that we have for evangelizing to a person has to make sense for where that person is at. Has to make sense for the journey, for the place, for the stage, for all that kind of stuff. It's gotta go together. Well, the mistake that we often make in evangelism is we look at the world and we think it's, this is the world. That there's unbelievers and there's believers, and that's all there is. And so there's these things you do with unbelievers, and there's these things you do with believers. And in some sense, that's true, that the world is on some level this way. But when it comes to evangelistic strategy, if we put all unbelievers in the same box, we're not going to have good strategies to reach them. If we treat everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus exactly the same, we're going to have problems. We want to make sure that we're not believing in the conversion lie. 
The conversion lie says that my purpose as a follower of Jesus is to convert as many people as possible. I appreciate the heart behind that. I respect the desire. But that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus said was the commissioned truth. Make disciples. Part of making disciples is teaching them to obey everything. How long does it take you to teach a person to obey everything? A lifetime. And so our desire for those people we talked about at the very beginning today, understand you're making a lifelong commitment. Understand that it's kind of like a marriage till death or moving do us part. You're going to be with that person and you're going to invest in that person. And we have to understand that in your relationship, because this is relational evangelism, you're going to go through stages with those people. You're going to go through different places. And the strategy that you have is going to be different for each of those places. So if we don't want to look at the world like this, how could we look at the world? Let me introduce something here that's going to kind of be the backbone of this course for the next five weeks which is what I call the spiritual spectrum. The spiritual spectrum is trying to look at people's spiritual journey. It's understanding that there's different places on it. Now, this is one of those things where we try to make a general description of every human being, and so there's obviously places where this falls short. But generally speaking, I think this gives us a much more strategic advantage in our desire to get people to follow Jesus. So, this is kind of fun, and I like it, and it requires audience participation. So, get up those 15 minutes of courage, and be ready to participate. So, let's start with a volunteer. Who wants to be a volunteer? Alright, Kimmy, come on up. Now, Kimmy is uh, Kimmy's on my small group curriculum committee, and so I know Kimmy a little bit. This is actually perfect. Because I know that Kimmy is a big fan of cats. Yes. That is true. Yeah, I know this about her. She likes the feline variety. So, Kimmy, how many cats do you have? Two. Two? Uh, I forget their names. Macbeth and Andromeda. I didn't know that, actually. Macbeth <laughs> and Andromeda. You guys went full on on those names. Okay. So, um, in your experience with your cats, when they feel threatened, they generally physically react in a certain way. Yeah. Can, you, can you demonstrate for me <laughs> what it looks like when your cat reacts, when it feels threatened? Can you show me what that looks like? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is important. What are we going to do? Yes. No, they... I mean, they, I mean, we want audio and video. We want the whole... We want to hear it and see it. They poof up real big, right? Yeah, perfect. Right there, right there. That's what it is. So, I need all of us to do that together. Like, we are threatened cats. Just go. Okay, that's perfect. Show, let's, let's all say you do it, because this is your job for tonight. There we go, perfect. All right, so Kimmy, I need you to stand right over here. And you are going to represent the first stage on our spiritual spectrum, which is hostile. This is hostile, because I want you to, to think and feel like hostile people act like they're being threatened. They act like cats. They just have that, you know, claws out, hissing thing, like, rah. Those are people who, for various reasons, are hostile to the gospel. Maybe they're followers of another religion. Maybe they've been hurt by the church. You know, whatever it is, but they want absolutely nothing to do with Jesus to the point where if you bring Jesus up, they're going to freak out on you. You've met people like that. You know what I'm talking about. So every time I say hostile, you got to do that for me. All right, that's our first one, hostile. Okay, great. I need another one here. Don't be shy. I'll start calling on people. I don't care. 
Who wants to be my second model? All right, come on. Oh, this is my wife's going to do this one. Okay, Sorry, great. No, you do. I didn't, I didn't plan this, but this is actually the easiest one out of all of them. Um, this one, how do I describe this one? Imagine we don't have teenagers yet, but we will someday. You know how teenage boys especially, I think teenage boys, a lot of time, their favorite activity is to do nothing. You've seen that look in a teenage boy's eyes when their brain is just empty and they're in a happy place. And they're thinking of nothing at all. And just kind of the look on their face is just... Kind of like there's just nothing going on upstairs. Clearly there's no brain activity or synapses. That's what you have to represent for me. It's just, just that kind of open mouth. There you go. That's it. That's it. That's perfect. This is the second stage on our spectrum. This represents stone cold. Stone cold are people that just spiritually, there's nothing going on. They just, they're, they're content with life. They're satisfied with how things are. You can bring up spiritual topics. They won't react in a hostile way. They're not that way. They just react with absolutely nothing. There's nothing going on. They have no spiritual desire. They have no spiritual reaction. They're just completely stone cold to anything. There we go. I've been doing this for a lot of years. I think that's the best one of those I've seen. She's really good at this. Um, no, I mean that in the best way possible. Uh, that's the next stage. All right. We need another volunteer. We're going to have, like, a lot of these, so. You right coming up? All right, what we've got on our next stage. I'm sorry, I'm letting Andrew in. Tell me again. Sam. Sam, Sam. I know Sam. This is embarrassing. Uh, Sam, now, you're, you're a young single male. Kind of. Kind of. Well, let's just pretend you are. So, um... <laughs> Oh wait, this doesn't work for that part. Never mind, this is fine. I'm skipping to the next one. So Sam, uh, what we're going to do is uh, we're kind of stuck thinking about a little bit about teenagers. And you know how some teenagers, their biggest fear in life is actually caring about anything. Like they approach life just like, I don't want to feel, I don't want to think. It's scary to do that stuff. And so their approach to the life and the world and anything you throw at them is just kind of this nonchalant, eh. Like... What do you want to eat tonight? Eh. Do you want to go to the movies? Eh. You want to, that's, just, that's just how they react to everything and anything because it's scary to care. So, Sam, you got to do that for me. This is not just that. Eh. Do what? Yeah, there we go. That's the next stage on our spectrum, which is open. People who are open, they're, they're clearly not hostile. We're not, we're not dealing with negativity. And they're not stone cold. We're getting, we're getting at least some reaction. We're getting at least some reaction. It's a little bit. It's not much. It's barely a spark. We can, it's hardly anything to work with. But at least we're dealing with something. It's, it's on the positive end of the scale. It's not a lot, but it's at least giving us somewhere to go. All right. Let's get another one. Oh, are we gonna are we gonna voluntold? <laughs> Who wants to be my next one? All right, coming up. We got this is our audio recording, by the way. We're gonna podcast this apparently, so we gotta be careful. Tell me your name. Anna. 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 Now, uh, is that your husband over there? What's his name? Philip. So let's. I don't know how you guys met. I don't know what the deal was. Oh, you met at Ozark. Okay, perfect. So let's imagine we're at Ozark. I don't know if you've been at Ozark, any of you, but Ozark has a cafeteria. And a lot of relationships began in the cafeteria. Did yours begin? Oh, perfect. This works so great. You guys are awesome. 
So let's imagine, I don't know if this is your story, but let's just put it on there and pretend it is, that you as a young freshman are sitting at a table enjoying your, your, your meal at Ozark, and then this guy walks in. You don't know his name, you don't know his story, you just know you like what you see. <laughs> and um, so your reaction to that moment it's kind of like this. You kind of put your finger up and you're like, hmm. It's kind of like, a, who's that guy? You know, you just saw something around the room and you don't know what to do with it. You, you're not really approaching it. You just know you would love to know more. That represents it. Show me how that works. Give me the face for that. There we go. All right. That is curious. It's people who, they, they like what they see. They're attracted to what they've heard. They, 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 they want to know more, but they don't know what to do with that. Like they don't know what the next step is, they don't know how to approach it, but there is a real desire, they just don't know where to place it, don't know where to put it and how to take the next steps, but it's there. All right, who do we have next? Don't be shy, come on. Give me some people. Heather? Heather? Is that what you said? Heather? All right, Heather. <laughs> Heather, you're next. <laughs> Now, Heather, you've got to imagine that you are, uh, let's say it's the, you're going to be over there, thanks, Diana. You're, uh, it's the 16th century. You're on a seafaring vessel. You've been on the ocean for two months, and your job on the ship is to look for land. Like, you're sitting up at the top thing, because you're about to, you're supposed to be home sometime soon, and you're just waiting for land to go. And, and you've been honest, you've been up there for a while, you're a bit bored, you're kind of not paying attention, and then all of a sudden you hear somebody go, Land! But that's your job. And so you're embarrassed. And so you immediately stand up straight and you put your hand up and you're like, where? Where? <laughs> that's what you do. Show me that. So you got to give me the audio. Where? Where? Yeah, because you messed up and you got to make up for it. And you're, you're desired of that. And you are what we call a seeker. This is not Harry Potter. It's not that kind of seeker. But you're, I don't have a thing that would work for that. This was before Harry Potter. Um, <clears throat> but you're, you have a strong desire for something. You want to seek it out. You want to do it. Everything is there. You just, you just, you're ready for that next step. That's what seekers are. Seekers are super fun. All right, let's get our next one. We need someone who uh, likes to sing a little bit. We got any singers in the room? I got to prepare you for this one a little bit. Who wants to be my singer? Come on now. You can volunteer somebody else. I'll, may, I'll allow you to do that. Point to someone who knows and can sing. Right here? Now, what we're going to need you to do is you're going to need to start by putting your hands in a posturous position of prayer. And you're going to give us that great old hymn. I have decided. Just that part. I have decided. Perfect. How was that? Yeah. I like it. Great. This is our thing. It's called decided. And this is a person who has made a decision to follow Jesus. That's what the have decided is about. And so this is a wonderful thing. This is something we celebrate. This is something we throw a party about. This is something that we make a big deal about because it is a big deal. I've taught this enough that some people have misunderstood me. And I want to be very clear. Be happy. 
<laughs> that someone has made a decision to follow Jesus. Let's get it again. That someone has decided. I have decided. Yes, we got the right one. Thanks for the suggestion, by the way. Um, what we do here. But here's the other side of it. We're not done. This is a great and wonderful thing, and we should celebrate it for the new life and that it is. But it's not our goal, and we're not done. we still got more. For this next one, I need two people. So you can, you can pull a partner up with you. You can, you can bring someone alongside. You can do it together. Well, that's true. You, can, you can bring somebody up with you. We gotta pull up with you. You gotta bring somebody. Scott and Judy. Dad. Because my wife. You still gotta go home there afterwards. Let's see. I knew I would be up here after volunteering. Okay, so you guys are positioned correctly. Your job is to, in your hands, pretend like you're holding the Bible. Not you. No. Pretend he's, he's metaphorically holding the Bible in his hands, and you're going to give it over so that he can see it, and you're going to say, Hey! Hey! No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. you're going to say, I'm not very good at following instructions. No, clearly. Uh, you're going to say, Hey! Hey! Do this! Do this! And that's what you do. This is the stage that we call, I don't know, this is here. My wife's on this right now. Uh, it's called the joined beginner stage. It's where you have to have somebody in your life who brings the Bible to you and says, hey, do this. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to live out your faith. These are the beginning steps of, of discipline, disciplines and, and Bible study and, and community and all this kind of stuff. You need someone in your life to be able to walk you through the beginning things because you cannot do it on your own. You're going to be in a place like that. And that's what we do right after someone's made a decision. Now, we don't need anybody for this next one. Tell me your name. I'm sorry. Scott. Scott, Scott you're going to then move over. And then this is your turn now. You're going to hold the Bible yourself, and you're going to say, hey, hey, I can do this. I can do this. Did you see the progression? And we started out over here where someone, we had, we're depending on someone to tell us how to do everything. He says, hey, do this. And then we get to a point where we've learned that enough to where we can, hey, I can do this. So this is our, oh, too many. This is our do novice stage. Where someone, it's not, no, don't misunderstand me, it's not that you don't need community, it's not that you don't need people in your life, that's, that's part of the Christian life and forever always will be. But you're not dependent on someone for every part of your faith. In other words, you know how to feed yourself. You've gotten to a place of understanding and expertise to where you can do some things on your own. You always need other people, but you're not totally dependent on people to have any kind of relationship with Jesus. All right, we need another one. Who's another one? <coughs> Don't be shy. We only need two more, and then we're done. I got you. Okay, Sergio, come on up. I already volunteered, Jan. Someone's not speaking. <laughs> so, Sergio, stand right over here. You literally have nothing to do in this one. This is a great one because Scott's going to come to you, and just like Ted is it? Ted. Ted did to him. Scott's going to turn over, and he's going to give the Bible over to Sergio. And you, guess what you're going to say? I think you can figure this out. Hey. Do this. There we go. That's it. <laughs> because that's the progression of discipleship, is that there's people in our lives that tell us how to do things. Then we can do things. Then what's our job next? To teach others. That's how multiplication occurs. And so we move from the point of beginner to novice to expert, where we are teaching others to do the same thing. 
That's the call of disciple-making. That's what happens after a person makes a decision. But we're still not done. One more volunteer. One more volunteer. Who's going to be our last one? Yes. Leo, Leo, come on up. <laughs> Dale Harrington, elder of the church. I think you can handle this. <laughs> I think it's appropriate. Dale, are you by chance a rugby fan? I do know rugby. You know the, the, uh, the black shirts of New Zealand? Yes, all black, sorry. <coughs> you know they're kind of, what happens with the all blacks? Tell me kind of what they're doing for. Uh, winning a lot of rugby games. Well, that's true, but what do they do before rugby games to, to kind of intimidate the other team and, and be prepared? Okay, well, the All Blacks, they're famous for, before their games, they do this little, like, tribal dance. And it's just very masculine. And it's kind of this whole thing that they do, and it, it intimidates the other team, because they're like, oh, I've got to fight those guys. And it's just effective. We're not going to do the whole thing, because I don't even know how to teach the whole thing. We're just going to do a very simple part. So they've got to give me a wide stance, a real manly kind of masculine stance here. And you're going to get your left foot out, and you're going to go, ooh, get some real face in. There we go. Then it's a three-step dance. You go, and then your right one comes out, and then you give me a real deep, alright, there we go. Let's see what you get. Let's see what you get. Yeah. Right. There we go. What this represents is mature. This is someone who has reached kind of full Christian maturity. They are strong, they are powerful. The Holy Spirit is just rippling through them because they have reached complete and total Christ-likeness. Now, does that ever actually exist? Well, I haven't known anyone. I don't know if you do, it's certainly not me. But it is our goal. So, notice the progression here. We meet people who are hostile, and stone-cold, and open, and curious, and seeking, and decided. Once they're decided, they need somebody to say, Hey, do this! And then eventually, hopefully, Hey, do this! <laughs> you gotta do it yourself first. Oh, I can do this! Okay. Hey, do this! And then they finally become <laughs> mature. <laughs> But with every person we meet, no matter where they are on this, no matter what stage, our goal is always to get them there. So we understand that disciple-making is part of every relationship we have in our lives, because somebody's always on one of these places. And our goal is just to get them further along, get them to the next step, get them to the next place. Let me give you two big lessons from this. Number one. If you're dealing with people on this side, that's all this course is going to be. There's a whole course about this, and we're not going to do it. That happened a year ago. <laughs> but uh, our course is about here, and about this place, and about all this kind of stuff. What I want you to realize is that any step further in this progression, no matter how minor it is, even if you just get one place further forward in your relationship with that person, you have done a significant work of God. Far too many times, because I've known a lot of passionate evangelists, and I've worked with a lot of missionaries, and I've done all this kind of stuff, is they get so obsessed with here that if they invest years of their life into a person and they took them from here to here, and they think it was a failure because they didn't get here, trust in the sovereignty of God enough 
to know that you're just one person in their life. And as much as he was faithful to put you in their life, he's going to put somebody else who's going to pick them up from that place and continue to move on. I can tell you story after story after story of where that's happened. So any, any effort that we make, any movement toward that place of maturity is a significant work of God. And in your desire to evangelize, be not so concerned about the decision as you are about the next step. Because we believe in a God who loves them more than you do and is going to be faithful to their journey and where that goes. Second lesson. This is not a one-way street. And the reality is, and it's probably part of the reason why some of us are here tonight, is because we know people that have been in these places and eventually came back to these places and it all kind of goes back and forward. And sometimes we get here and we get stuck and we can't get out of certain places. And sometimes we go directions we don't want to go. And it all is just one big messy thing because people are complicated. <laughs> Our job is just to meet people where they're at, wherever on this place it is, <coughs> and help them move forward. That's our call. That's our goal. That's what disciple making in its simplest form really is. So the next five weeks of this course, we're going to spend an entire day on each one of these. About what it means to be hostile, what it means to be stoical, why is a person at that place, what are the normal features of that person, and then importantly, what's the strategies for that place to get them to the next one? Like, what do we need to do to just move them a little bit forward? We're going to spend one, two, three, four, five weeks. That's why we designed it this way on each of those. That's the course. Okay, let's give a hand to our volunteers. Thank you so much. It's 8.02. Two quick things before two quick things before we go. Let me give you some homework. Um, challenge number one I want to give you is this question of proximity. We can't share our faith with people we, that are not in our lives. And so ask yourself the question, where are people in my life that need to know Jesus? I'm asking you this question because it's a question I constantly have to ask myself. I am a minister who works at a church and teaches at a Bible college. I am around Christians 99.9% .9 of my day. And so I'm not going to be able to share my faith unless I figure out another place to go. Unless I figure out a community to get involved in. I'm like thinking about this comic book store on Main Street that has game nights. I don't know how to do those game nights. And I don't read comic books all that often. But like it's people that I can get to know. I've got to find a place because of the way my life is structured, to be around people that, know that don't know Jesus. For some of you, that's super easy, and your challenge is already done. You work places, and you've got family members, and all that kind of stuff. But so much of evangelism is just being around non-believers. It's just being in a place in their life. If that's not where you're at, how are you going to fix that? That's challenge number one. Challenge number two. There's a whole thing on this that we couldn't go through today and we don't have time to fit it, so I'm going to make you do it on your own if you really care so much, which is I want you to know about what biblical evangelism is. I want you to read the book of Acts, but since I'm a nice guy, I'm going to tell you specifically what to read. It's all right here. You can take a picture of it on your phone. I'll leave it up if you want to do it. You're not going to have time to copy it down. What we have here in these chapters and verses is every time in the book of Acts that someone attempted to evangelize. Every time that someone shared the gospel. And here's, don't take a picture yet because you need the next part. <clears throat> here's, what, here's what you could do as a great homework assignment. 
is you can ask yourself these three questions. What was the gospel message they gave? As in, when they shared the gospel, what did they say the gospel was? How did they package it? How did they present it? Number two, how did they ask the audience to respond? So they said, blah, here's the gospel. Now I want you to do this. What did they say to do next? And then number three, what did they promise that they would receive if they accepted the message? So what was that? So in other words, how did they present the gospel? Like, what was their message? What was their practice? What was their strategy? What did they ask people to do after they heard the gospel? And then what did they say would happen if they accepted it? What was the promise? Because I think if you look at those three things, you'll see some inconsistencies with how we present the gospel today. I think you'll see some different answers than how we often think of these things. Let's learn from the first church. The people who literally knew Jesus about how they handled the gospel and evangelism. And I think that would be an important endeavor. And again, I have a whole thing on it, but we don't have time. So you have to do it on your own. That's all we got today. It is 8.04. Thank you so much for coming. Same time, maybe the same room next week. Hope to see you there.